Hello and welcome to uh, this week's A Photographic Life. Let's talk about photographic prints, shall we? I suppose today in a digital world, the photographic print has become something that a lot of photographers never actually create. Or if they do create it, it will be for a specific reason, perhaps to sell or to hang on an exhibition wall in a gallery. In the past, of course, the photographic print was an essential part of any photographer's process of actually making sure that people saw their work. Without the print, the image was never seen. From a commercial perspective, from a commissioned perspective, photographers had to create prints or get printers to make their prints for them to supply to clients to be used. That print had a value to the photographer in that it was the only way in which they could transfer that image to the client. Once that image had been used, once that print had been used, it would be sent back to the client and the client would either hold on to it or they would throw it away. Sometimes they would be sent back to the photographer, but rarely and this was primarily because the photographer saw little value in the print. If we're going back here, say 30, 40 years. Therefore, a situation arose recently whereby photographers started to be concerned about what happened to those prints. And perhaps those prints are in circulation as being sold, although they weren't actually photographers' prints signed off as limited editions. They were just work prints. Today, many photographers are selling their prints as open editions, which is kind of similar to that idea of a work print. Obviously, it's not existing within a limited edition. It isn't signed, it isn't stamped often. Although I have to say, I have quite a few photographic prints from the old days, which are signed and are stamped on the reverse by the photographer. In the past, the photographic print had very little value outside of being used as uh, an opportunity to share the work. Today, what we're talking about is photographic prints being perceived as having a value, and sometimes a value much higher than they actually have. And how to value a print is as difficult as knowing how long a piece of string is. It really is a bit like selling your home. Whatever somebody's willing to pay for it is what it's worth, not necessarily what you think it's worth. But if I go back to those days of the prints, one of the ways in which we got prints, because I say we because obviously I was working on a magazine at the time, to promote film stars and films were prints that would come directly from the makers of the film. The prints would come to us, we would use them, and then we created our own filing system, ABCD in filing cabinets, and each time a film came in, the prints would be dropped into the correct um, position. So that in the future, if we wanted to do another layout, another story, and include images of that actor or that film, we had them there and we didn't have to pay for them again. But not everybody did that. Although one person started to recognise the value of this material very early on, and if you didn't have the print, you would have to go to the John Coe Bow Collection, 
or the Kobo Collection, as it was known, and you would get your print from them. Well, recently, the Hood Museum of Art at Dartmouth College in the US has completed a multi-year acquisition of more than 6,000 Hollywood photographs from the John Cobal Foundation. John uh, was renowned authority on cinema, imagery, memorabilia and glamorous portraits of film stars. He was also a really nice guy and very forward-thinking. He uh, gave his name to the Portrait Prize, which is now sponsored by Taylor Wessing. The Hood, which did not reveal the purchase price, says that many of the vintage prints were produced by unsung photographers at the time. The negatives were created from around 1916 to the 1970s. Others were created from negatives Cabal acquired from studios that no longer wanted them. The museum plans to start exhibiting the archive in early 2022. It just goes to show, doesn't it, that whatever a photographic print is, it does have, or it can have, or perhaps it should have, a value for the future. Over the last few weeks, we've been dropping in a few rules, lessons for life by famous photographers and different people involved in the uh, art world. And I came across them more. This week, it's Helen Frankenthaler on how to be an artist. Helen said this very succinctly. Lesson number one, try everything and experiment often. Lesson number two, Give yourself prompts, but don't become married to them. Lesson number three, approach colour expansively. Lesson number four, let mistakes lead to invention. More rules and lessons for life as I come across them in coming weeks. This week, we welcome to the podcast to explain to us what photography means to her, Michelle Watt, a fashion and portrait photographer known for her surreal narrative style and work that often addresses themes of freedom and restriction within presupposed conventions of female grace and beauty. Her editorial work has been published in the New York Times, USA Today, Vogue Italia, Marie Claire Maison Italia and Blanc magazine. And she has worked with commercial clients such as Cadillac, The North Face, Capture One, LG Electronics and Scotch and Soda. Michelle is based in both Brooklyn and San Francisco with her Rhodesian boxer dog Fiona. And she likes to travel to climb boulders. I presume that's Michelle, although maybe Fiona does too. So I stage conceptual narratives, which means I assemble small pieces into large worlds to tell a story and explore subjects that spring both wonder and torment, awesome and awful, all while feeling safe. Photography allows me a sense of control amidst the chaos of real life. In this way, photography is a mode of self-healing, and it helps me work through issues of past trauma or fears or shame. In staging these scenes, I'm building these stories, and I have to look it in the eye. I have to break down the pieces in order to put them back together again so I can figure out why it is the way it is and try to figure out what it is that draws me in so strongly or repels me so strongly. Staging photos is a way to observe 
and acknowledge and ultimately, hopefully, to find acceptance. Not in a way that I approve of what happened, but as a way to come to terms with it so the fear or the shame doesn't define who I am. And working through this stuff, photography helps me find courage. Not that it takes away those fears, but it helps me move forward in spite of those fears and tread into territory that is still uncomfortable, but this time with a little bit more of a resilient attitude. I'm not really one of those photographers that takes their camera around everywhere with them to take pieces of the world and keep it to themselves, for themselves. There's something predatory to me about that. In fact, I think all documentary photography is is somewhat predatory. And just in the way they, they use their reality, someone else's reality, their life, to serve a purpose, a different purpose, and that is to make a great picture. And then to win accolades and recognition because you are good at using someone else's life to make a great picture. There's something vaguely inauthentic about that. Even though I admit a lot of the greatest photography in the world lies in that genre. I suppose it's slightly different when the subject and photographer come to some sort of agreement about it. But that's not often the case. I grew up in a household where I wasn't really allowed to take photos of my family, so it's hard for me to photograph real life in a meaningful way because I was conditioned to think that it's hurtful, like I'm taking a piece of them that doesn't belong to me. It's it's kind of like that old cliche adage, photography is this insidious thing that steals someone's soul by imprisoning it in an image. I, I think I was made to condition, I was conditioned to think that it made them feel violated or unsafe, and that led to complicated feelings about taking pictures at all. But my solution was sort of, you can't take some something soul if you created it from scratch in the first place. So I try to talk about these traumas or uncover the soul of them, so to speak, without photographing them literally, without photographing the people in them literally, but instead by constructing environments and scenarios to have that conversation. I find that allegories and visual metaphors can sometimes be more impactful than the literal or journalistic. It was my way of seeing when I wasn't allowed the privilege to see. And ultimately, every photograph is a lie anyway, so we might as well point to that and make fun with it. There's a little bit of that in every picture I make this sort of subtle nod to how that we are looking at a construct. And as a viewer, you have to enter this agreement of us looking at something fake in order for us to get to the truth. And it's supposed to be playful. I love that question that arises. Is that real? Was that really there? How much of this did you stage? Is this a real location? How did you do that? Because all those questions make you question photography as a medium. And oftentimes there is more than meets the eye. It's really not effortless. (laughs) But I do consider it a privilege that I have this outlet that people are willing to look. And I hope that my healing might extend to others and, and inspire their healing. And maybe help relieve some suffering as it did for me through photography. 
Thank you, Michelle, for your contribution this week. Uh, I think definitely some controversial comments in there for a lot of the documentary photographers, perhaps, who are listening to this. But it wouldn't be any good, would it, if there wasn't some controversy, if we weren't questioning what we do. So I thank Michelle for raising those points and being so honest uh, in her opinion, because really, at the end of the day, it's all photography is, isn't it? It's just opinions. Opinions, of course, brought forward into visual form and narrative and storytelling. And I when thinking about that idea there of storytelling, it makes me think about this idea of constructed narrative and also that idea of constructive narrative within a commercial commission setting. I think that if you were to talk to Michelle and hear her speak, what you'd probably think is that her practice uh, sounds very much like a contemporary art practice, not one that's working within that commissioned environment. And I think what that raises there is a lot of the confusion and misunderstanding about the commissioned environment today, not how it was in the past, but actually how it is in the present. I got a, a, saw a tweet, somebody tweeted at me the other day on the basis of an article that I'd written saying that uh, they'd given everything to photography and they'd misunderstood that uh, it wasn't really going to work for them. And I said to them, well, you know, you have to see that idea of being commissioned as a collaboration. They said they didn't see that. They saw it as a manipulation to which I thought, well, I think your mindset is wrong for commissioned photography. And I think what Michelle is uh, demonstrating there is how the personal, the extremely personal, the very personal approach to a body of work can translate into the commissioned environment nowadays, as well as existing within a contemporary art practice. So you may not be aware uh, aware of uh, Michelle's work. You may not be aware of her name. Quite often the case with commissioned photography that we may know the image but not the photographer. So certainly I think somebody for everybody to check out, particularly if you found her comments controversial, look at her work, maybe even reach out to her and try and understand her point of view. Talking about uh, constructed narratives, I, at the beginning of the other week, uh, watched Shadow Kingdom. To some of you, that will mean something. To others, probably not. Well, it was a live-streamed, and I use the word loosely, concert by Bob Dylan. Uh, touchstone for this podcast, inspiration for me for so much. But what was interesting about this was, once again, Bob was doing something different. At 80 years of age, he was reinterpreting his work with a young band. But was he reinterpreting it with a young band? The band were wearing masks. In this concert, everything was set up at times like a uh, kind of 1950s cowboy film. It was all photographed, filmed, I should say, in black and white. The lighting reminded me of those kind of film noir films of the 1940s, perhaps the 1930s at certain times. There was a sense of the third man, a sense of Paris. He described that it was made at the the Bonbon Club in Marseille. It wasn't. The entire thing was a construction 
the whole, whole thing was fake. The musicians were very obviously miming. So were they the musicians who had played in the concert? Now, you may not be interested in Bob Dylan, and you may not be interested in Shadow Kingdom. Uh, I didn't say also, it was a, a pay-to-view, a $25, and you could watch it for 48 hours. Again, an interesting use of technology and visual communication by somebody of his age, always changing and always moving. But what it really made me feel, and I think what was so important from a photographic perspective was that however old you are, it doesn't mean to say you need to get stuck in the old ways. It doesn't mean that you can't reinterpret and embrace new technologies. It also showed the importance of history in the lighting and the the overall uh, editing and the, the quality of the way in which uh, images were framed. I was a big fan of it, as you can probably tell, but I do think it's so important that we hang on to those ideas, that we don't have to just keep repeating ourselves with our work. We can keep moving forward, trying new things. And I've been trying to write an article recently about the photographic pedant, but every time I read what I've written, I sound a little bit angry so whether or not that will ever be uh, published i'm not sure uh, i should say that this particular episode was recorded in the very very early hours of the morning when it's actually physically possible to get into the shed it's been way too hot over the last few days and the shed has been resembling a sauna. Therefore, at the beginning, my voice may have been a little bit croaky and a bit squeaky occasionally, also a bit slow. But uh, as we've got to the end of the podcast, I'm starting to wake up a little bit and perhaps uh, sound a little bit better. And I certainly feel a little bit more perky, although I've yet to have my morning cup of tea. But we do what we can when we can do it, where we can do it, and how we can do it. And that, for me, is fine. I have no fear of failure. <laughs> I fail too often to have that. But anyway, I hope that uh, my voice and uh, my waking up throughout this episode hasn't uh, in any way prevented you from enjoying the episode and uh, learning and thinking about a lot of the points that have been raised uh, in relation to your own professional practice. As I say, uh, we do this podcast, well, I do this podcast in a shed. So if I can do it in a shed, you can use whatever you've got to do whatever you want to do. Uh, I think really where we are this week, this morning, as I record this, whatever time you listen to it, uh, I'll just say thanks very much for listening. Do spread the word. Tell others about what we do. And of course, if you can, possibly take care.